Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hello and welcome. I'm Jill Hamilton, Senior Editor at Clearance Jobs. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're chatting with Bob Lord from the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. So we're going to talk with Bob a little bit about his role at CISA and then also about just understanding multi-factor authentication. So thanks for joining us today, Bob. Thanks for having me. So let's start out and talk a little bit about what your journey was to CISA and what your role is there. Sure. I started my career more in the tech space. So I've worked at companies like Twitter and Yahoo. So, you know, the big tech companies with lots of people. And then I joined the Democratic National Committee in light of the 2016 hacks to try to rebuild their security program from the ground up. And that was a much smaller organization with a different number of people, uh, different budgets and, and things like that. So just a couple hundred people compared to the thousands and thousands of people who worked at the other tech companies. In that journey, I noticed a number of things about the kinds of technologies that we buy or acquire, both from the enterprise side of things, as well as from the consumer side of things, like the devices that we carry in our pockets. It occurred to me that one of the challenges organizations have is that a lot of the products are built and delivered without safety being the first thing in their mind. The challenge is, especially for smaller organizations, how can you patch all of the things? How can you afford to buy all the right security products? And even if you could afford to buy them, how are you going to find the right talent to correctly deploy them and tune them to make sure that you're safe. This was something that had been troubling me for a while, and I was lucky enough to talk to Director Easterly at CISA about some of these challenges that I thought we were all facing, but hadn't really talked a lot about. Um, and she said, oh boy, have, have I got a job for you. So I joined CISA about five months ago and still learning my way around. But really a big part of my mission is to try to explore that space that we sometimes talk about with the terms secure by default or safe by default, and then also secure by design. So we want products that are built and delivered with designs and good technologies and make sure that they're not going to be hacked all the time. But we also want them delivered to us with defaults that are going to represent you know, a good security posture. So you can imagine a product that was built with the best security technologies and delivered to us, but it might be delivered with default settings that put us in harm's way. And so we want to really help industry think a lot about that and, uh, and try to make sure that we're all working together towards the idea that we shouldn't have to get hacked all the time. That's so good. I was at a recent cybersecurity conference. Director Easterly was actually there. A lot of the talk, not just from her, but many of us talking about baking in security, which was a key phrase. But also, but I like what your perspective is. There's the people side of it in just even controlling the different defaults, as well as changing the technology side as well and adding the different capabilities with a mindset. It's more of a mindset shift too. Of It, it really is. Yeah, adding in that those security levels. Yeah, and we saw this in the evolution of automobile safety. So there was a time when safety wasn't a primary component of how cars were built. And over time, it developed certain standards, not just seat belts, which is, of course, an obvious example, but crumple zones. So cars are designed from the very beginning to absorb the energy of a car crash and things like collapsible steering columns. So believe it or not, you know, if you're in a collision of a certain type, your steering column today is actually going to buckle and not drive forward towards you, which is what it used to do. So these things have to be baked in from the very beginning. And that's easier said than done. Right. 
So let's zero in a little bit talking about one tool that we have at our disposal, which is multi-factor authentication. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is and why it's important and why it's necessary even? Yeah. So as you know, we've used passwords since the dawn of computing. And from the first time you got an account anywhere, you had a password associated with it. And they've always been a little bit problematic. But over the last couple of decades, we've really started to see their limits. And the way I like to talk about this is by talking about how the attacks work. I think that's helpful because people can then really understand why the defenses that we're recommending are are there. But it's also kind of interesting to think about the ways that the bad guys think so that we can start thinking like the hackers too. For example, uh, attackers will go around and they'll look for uh, websites that have been compromised where the database of users has been leaked, and they'll try to find those leaked email addresses and the associated passwords. And then what they do is they just try to reuse those names and passwords just to see if they'll work on other sites. So they'll find the credential dump from one compromised site and they'll say, hmm, I wonder if this name and password pair work for these social media accounts or these other email accounts. So that's one way that the attacks work. The other way is that they just look for weak passwords. And believe it or not, people still choose passwords like one, two, three, four, five, six. So sometimes they just ask themselves like, oh, I wonder if this particular user uses one of the top 20, 30 bad passwords. And sure enough, sometimes that just works. And of course, sometimes they just fish you where they just send you an email or a text. They pretend to be your bank or your email provider. What I like to say is, uh, you know, people say like, oh, or, you know, how are they going to hack you? They're going to write some sort of really sophisticated code. And I'm like, why would they do that? Why hack people when you can just ask them for their name and password? That turns out to be pretty straightforward. And that's a very common attack. Now, the deal with multi-factor authentication is that it's designed to stop most of these kinds of attacks. And so a common form of MFA is one where you load an application onto your phone. It's called an authenticator application. And then you pair that application with some account, let's say like your email account. And then after you've done that initial enrollment, you go to that particular web service and it will ask you not only for your name and password, also going to ask you for a six-digit code that you get from the app. That's a little bit about what the attackers are doing and what it looks like from a user's perspective to uh, to use MFA. It's just, it seems so simple to just be able to add that capability. And yet I know it has a lot of layers that companies sometimes have to go through. Or even as users, sometimes people just opt not to use it, even for things simple like you know, Instagram, I think, has multi-factor authentication. They didn't tell me about that, but I learned. I think I learned at it. <laughs> well, this is an important point. This is a very important point. So, you know, when we talk about secure by design and we talk about secure by default, the experience that you just described is really important for us to think about in the industry. It's one of the things that really bothered me. There's no visual difference between your Instagram account if you have MFA and if you don't. Now, compare that to in a car without buckling your seatbelts and starting to drive, what's going to happen? It's going to start beeping at you and it gets louder and more urgent. There is a system that warns you that you are in danger and you should buckle up. And that nudge is a substantial enough nudge to get you to take action to get safe. We would like to see more of that in the tech space. So not just an occasional email that says, hey, would you like to consider this? But something that indicates a clear and present danger that should you be attacked, you may actually fall victim to this attack and you might lose control of your account. And that would be very sad. Yeah, I don't even think I got an email from them. I learned about it at the cybersecurity conference, actually. But like Instagram has this now. And then I went in and I was like, oh, I should turn that on. 
So, I mean, it's helpful to have different ways of communicating it, but it should actually, you know, I think do they come from the company themselves, but we want more beeping. Yeah. We want more beeping <laughs> yes. in in the applications that we use. Let's switch to like how exactly does multi-factor authentication improve security? So, if you think about the attack where they found your name and password in some dump, the attacker only really needs your name and password and then they become you and Quick summary is that if you add this additional layer, this additional factor, now the attacker not only needs to know your name and password, but they need to have access, generally speaking, to your phone or to whatever other MFA system that you enrolled in. And if they don't, then most of these attacks will just fail and they'll have to move on to try to compromise somebody else's account. And that's why we're really emphatic about saying that enabling MFA is the top action that you can take to improve your cybersecurity posture and to stay safe. I mean, we shout this from the, the rooftops and I can't stress this enough. Everybody listening should make sure that they have enabled MFA. You sound like you've got your Instagram account under control and that's very good. And we recommend that people start with their email and other social media services. And after that, they should look at basically all of their other online services, the vast majority of which today support MFA. Mail is your trust anchor. That's where you do password resets and things like that. So really definitely start with mail and social media is just a logical extension of that. That's the place you go to socialize. So we really recommend that you start with those, but continue to look for other services. And as you mentioned, there may not be beeping when you're in danger. And so you kind of have to seek that out, but it's there for most services. Right. It's a good reminder. I think we're used to doing it for our workplaces. We get the beeping internally from our IT departments. Personally, no one else is driving that. Sometimes it's hard to be proactive. Life is moving at you, coming at you fast, right? So it's a good reminder. So let's talk about which authentication factor provides the highest level of security. This is where it gets a little bit dicey. And, and you know, I confess in the industry, we haven't done the best job of really simplifying all of the stuff. So it's really straightforward. It actually is kind of simple, but um, it's, it's, it's more complicated than it needs to be. So you've heard of SMS-based MFA. So this is text messaging. We kind of put that at the bottom of the safety mechanism. Any form of MFA is better than no MFA. Let me just be really, really clear on that. But SMS is vulnerable to a variety of attacks like phishing, but also this thing called simjacking where attackers will call up the phone company, pretend to be you, and then they'll just convince the agent to switch your account over to the attacker-controlled phone. Now they're you. And that's really big in like cryptocurrency scams. That's really big there. So it's, that can be a real big problem. There's also authenticator apps. There are a number of different ones, but these are phone apps that you use to enroll to each of the websites that you go to. And then when you log in, it'll show a you know six-digit code that you type in. Those are pretty good. There are also forms of MFA called push notifications. I don't know if you've bumped into those. Those are kind of popular in the enterprise space. But the basic idea is after you type your name and password, it will send a little notice to your phone and pop up a little dialogue and it'll say, hey, looks like you're trying to log in. Would you like to do that? And you can either accept or cancel. Cancel is usually a pretty good indication that, <laughs> that something has gone wrong and your IT team should probably look into that. Push notification has come under a lot of uh, scrutiny recently because there's this thing called push bombing and it's where the attacker has gotten your name and password through some means. And then what they do is they just keep sending, they just keep trying to log in and it keeps sending more and more notices to your phone. And either by accident or just to make it stop, people sometimes just press accept and let the attacker in. So that turns out to be a surprisingly effective attack. And so more and more push 
notification services are coming in with a thing called number matching. It'll say like, oh, go type in this number, and then you have to type in the number. So that helps, no doubt about it. But all of those are really susceptible to phishing. They're better than nothing, to be sure. They're still, they're not phishing resistant. And so we've seen the development of a new technology called FIDO authentication, F-I-D-O, that's the one that is at the top of the list. And that's the one that we really want people to start uh, thinking more about. We want more services to offer it to both consumers as well as to enterprises. Okay. So let's talk about what it is. Like what is FIDO Security Key? And is it the same thing as MFA or is it somewhat different? No, that's a good question. So it actually is a form of MFA. So it's yet another factor that you use to log in to a website. It was developed specifically a number of years ago to be phishing resistant. So the observation was, hey, you know, over time, we're probably going to see more phishing. And what we need is something that is going to protect people so that when they fall for the scams, the attacker still can't take over. So I mentioned earlier phishing and how incredibly popular and incredibly effective that is, unfortunately. They just ask you for your name and password and you give it to them. They can also ask you for your name and password in six-digit code. So, And that's actually been happening. There have been a bunch of cases in the news recently where companies had deployed MFA on their VPN, for example, and they deployed it with what I call legacy MFA, which is still better than nothing, but wasn't good enough. And so the attackers were able to stand up a fake website. It looked just like the company's login portal. They tricked people into going to that website. They type in their name and password. It asked for the six-digit code. They opened up their phone. They typed in the six-digit code. And then the attackers were in the network. And then all sorts of really, really unfortunate things happened. FIDO solves that problem. And you mentioned keys. FIDO is a generic authentication protocol. But yes, it is normally associated with a physical token. And that physical token can go on your keychain. On mine, I have two. I have one just sort of for a backup. And I've enrolled those keys in my mail accounts, my social media accounts, you name it. If it has FIDO support, I've, I've enrolled it. So that's one form. And I should also mention the way that you connect them is either through USB or through Bluetooth um, for your phone. And so that's good. But increasingly, services are now allowing you to use your phone as a security key, if that makes sense. So rather than having a separate dongle that you carry around with you, which is not that big a deal, now people are going to start to be able to use their phone as the actual secure authenticator. Again, the main thing, the main reason we really like that is we know that people are going to get fished. That's just a fact of life. And what we want is a form of MFA that is resistant to those attacks so that when you do exactly what the bad guys tell you to do, you're still safe. And that's what FIDO gives you. In some ways, it's almost bringing back a physical element to your safety. Like I think about, you know, working in a federal workplace and you have your CAC, or at least in the DOD, people have a CAC. And in order for the computer to work and you be able to log into your system, it physically has to have something that's identification from that, that it's you are who you are. Even if it's on your phone, which in the most secure places they can't bring in. So it has to be on, you know, something, something extra. But you know, even if it's on on your phone, there's something physical that you're checking in real time that's not being auto generated and can be faked or that you can be fooled by. So that's, that's really great. And now that's coming to the consumer space. So what people have enjoyed with either PIV or CAC, and I used to work on CAC many years ago, to help secure that. 
now end consumers can start to enjoy those kinds of benefits end consumers, but also small businesses and large businesses. It's really kind of the thing we're trying to popularize because it does give you exactly those kinds of benefits people in the government and the military have been using. But obviously, the attacks are getting so good across the board that really everybody right, deserves right. that level of protection. How does that FIDO security key actually work? So just like with a regular form of MFA, like the Authenticator app, you bind it or you enroll it to a service, let's say your mail service. So you go to your mail service and you go into the settings and you find the security section. And again, this is like the defaults, like we want this to be a little bit easier for all these different services, but you can find it. It goes into the security settings and then what form of MFA you would want. And then and then you are able to say, I'd like to register a security key, FIDO security key. And then it does something similar, not terribly dissimilar to what is actually going on under the covers with the CAC and PIV cards. So generates some cryptographic keys so that you are going to be able to prove that, yes, it really is you. You are the legitimate user and the owner of this account. But one fun thing is it remembers the location of the website that you enrolled in. So it's not going to try to do the cryptographic dance with the hacker's website as opposed to your email site. So when I mentioned before, we want to make sure that whatever we're using as a form of MFA, that that is going to succeed even if you fall for the ruse. And so in this particular case, if you're sent to some hacker website, it may look like your company's login page, but it's just not. So when you try to do what the attacker says, the attack will fail because you're on the wrong website and it doesn't have any cryptographic keys for that. And that's why we say that it's phishing resistant. It's so interesting to think about and make, makes you want to like take a pause over the weekend and just <laughs> secure a lot of different things. Yeah. But what type of authentication would you say is the most secure if you had to pick something? Yeah, so FIDO's at the top of the list. And that's the one we, we really want more organizations to start to adopt. And, you know, I should say, like, if you as an individual want to go do it, you can go do it. You can go buy the keys online. I recommend that. But also we want enterprises to start their migration so that they start using FIDO internally. And ultimately, what we would like to see is FIDO used for all staff, especially all system administrators. If you're a system administrator, you're a high value target. If I'm a hacker, I would rather hack one person who has the keys to the kingdom than to hack a whole bunch of individuals. Like it's just easier that way. And it turns out that system administrators are humans. They're going to fall for these ruses just like everybody else does. So we don't think that people should necessarily fret and say like, oh, I can't get this rolled out to all of my services and all my people all at once. That's fair. That's probably true. We think you should probably start somewhere, start that FIDO journey and learn some lessons and then iterate from there. And if you're working at a company that stores other people's data or an organization that stores other people's data, that's especially important. You know, what I tell the people who are cloud providers is like, hey, we bought your vision. We're moving from on-prem to the cloud, but you need to make sure that you're trustworthy. And part of being trustworthy is the ability for you to tell me that, yes, you have deployed FIDO in all of the places where an attacker would try to get access to my data. So, you know, the cloud is just somebody else's computer. Hopefully it's a computer that's run by people who are using FIDO. <laughs> yes, for sure. Well, I love this conversation since it has a focus for cybersecurity awareness month of, you know, see yourself in cyber. And I just, you know, I have four kids and I have teenagers with phones and, you know, we, we grew up learning, you know, don't talk to strangers in parking lots or on in physical spaces. And so I think they're very tech savvy, but not actually cybersecurity savvy. <laughs> I've found over time, you know, the one, the 
easy passwords has been a has been a problem and and just training basic training on what your password should be and then even just taking to the next level so this is just the next generation also has this mindset of like of cybersecurity and everything that they're doing instead of just cool new technology, right? I really think the vision that y'all have is it just really resonates for me. Can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe any places that people can go for more information, like kind of like what you're trying to achieve and where people can find out more. Yeah, totally. So, you know, the whole see yourself in cyber thing is kind of interesting. You can you can interpret that a bunch of different ways, or at least I have. So, you know, we want individuals as just citizens to to see themselves being more cyber secure. This is something you can do. It is not impossible. And in fact, it's not so hard. We also want people to see themselves, if you're working in in an organization of any size, any shape, to be that cyber champion, to start leading the way, to start nudging the organization to being more secure. So, you know, see yourself in cyber in that way. Of course, if you are interested, CISA has job openings and there's a lot of really exciting stuff uh, happening. I've been here for five months and I've, I've gotten nowhere near access to all of the amazing teams and all the amazing stuff that they're doing. There's just so much interesting stuff that's happening. Some of it is incredibly cool. You know, CISA has uh, job openings as well. So I think that's one thing. There are a bunch of toolkits on the CISA website that people can use, both as individuals, but also as small, medium-sized businesses. And of course, lots of resources for larger organizations. And I mean, you name it, there's information about what sort of vulnerabilities are being exploited in the wild. So you can prioritize those. If you're in charge of IT, you don't want to have to try to patch all the things all the time. You want to figure out how to prioritize. There's all sorts of amazing stuff there. Just a ton of great resources. And I'm personally trying to contribute a lot of text to the website to make sure that it's more actionable and more accessible. I think one of the things we don't do a great job of in this industry is is make things sound as straightforward as they (laughs) are. So we're going to try to fix that a little bit more. That's great. That's really great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today at ClearedCast. For more security clearance news and defense information, please visit us at news.clearancejobs.com. This episode of ClearedCast is brought to you by the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency.